back to starting up? Nine. All right. So, uh, thank all of you for joining us on our continuing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We've spent the last half hour debating the use of the word egg, which is in the first sentence of this chapter. So we may really not get very far at all today. Uh, if you'll notice that Doug has uh, the section up for streaming if you want to read along with us if you have your own copy of course you're more than welcome to it a couple housekeeping items before we get going as always we are looking for more and more volunteers to help us get stuff going help us do reviews help us prepare these talks or even run other talks if uh, you have a subject you're passionate about or if you want to do a deeper dive into any of the concepts we talk about today this week feel free to reach out we are more than happy to host talks and help push for uh, anything you want to be doing that's related to what we're up to uh, we also uh will at some point this week be tossing out our patreon so we really look forward to seeing what uh, might happen with that we have a handful of people who are spending far too much time uh, working on the server to keep it going for all of us uh specifically enzo who will end up hearing this at some point thank you very much for all your help and i know you're too busy to edit this but at some point it will be up so uh, thank you so much for all your help there um but with that i think we'll go ahead and uh, dive right in um this week we're going to be reading through chapter two section five the conjunctive synthesis of consumption consummation uh, I'm going to go ahead and kick it off, uh, but we are going to have to stop after the first paragraph and talk through what is meant by the word egg, which is just the most exciting conversation we're going to have all day. So I'll go ahead and begin after I shut my window, because apparently people are doing yard work. In the third synthesis, the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, we have seen how the body without organs was in fact an egg, crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones, localized with areas and fields, measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials, marked by thresholds. In this sense, we believe in the biochemistry of schizophrenia in conjunction with the biochemistry of drugs that will be progressively more capable of determining the nature of this egg and the distribution of field gradient threshold. It is a matter of relationships of intensities through which the subject passes on the body without organs, a process that engages him in becomings, rises and falls, migrations and displacements. R.D. Lang is entirely right, defining the schizophrenic process as a voyage of initiation, a transcendental experience of the loss of the ego, which causes a subject to remark, I had existed since the very beginning, from the lowest form of life, body without organs, to the present time. I was looking, not looking so much as just feeling ahead of me was lying the most horrific journey. When we speak here of a voyage, this is no more a metaphor than before when we spoke of an egg and of what takes place in it and on it. Morphogenetic movements, displacements of cellular groups, stretchings, folds, migrations, and local variations of potentials. There is no reason to oppose an interior voyage to exterior ones. Lenz's stroll, Najinsky's stroll, the promenades of Beckett's creatures are effective realities. But where the reality of matter has abandoned all extension, just as the interior voyage has abandoned all form and quality, henceforth causing pure intensities, coupled together almost unbearable, to radiate within and without intensities through which a nomadic subject passes. 
Here it is not a case of a hallucinatory experience, nor of a delirious mode of thought, but a feeling, a series of emotions and feelings as a consummation and a consumption of intensive quantities that form the material for subsequent hallucinations and deliriums. The intensive emotion, the affect, is both the common root and the principle of differentiation of deliriums and hallucinations. So the first thing I think we want to discuss and just go over is their use of the word egg here. Uh, I wasn't joking when I said we just spent the last half hour going over this use of the word egg. And it's important we make sure that all of us are on the same page of what they mean. They do not mean a chicken egg or an egg of that sort with a shell, uh, although they use that language uh, other times. Uh, and it's always how I've interpreted, literally, that they're talking about an egg. I know eggs have shells, Owen. Their <laughs> their use of the word egg here is about the potentiality, and originally, uh, as we've talked about in other texts uh, and in the original French text, they actually don't necessarily use the word egg, uh, the oof, um, but instead they're making a commentary on uh, the, uh, please someone jump in here. Jack? I mean, um, well, what I've been trying to do when I've been reading this, I don't think it's a perfect way of looking at it, is uh, uh, removing that idea of egg and just thinking about potentials. They're talking, when they use the term egg here, they're they're speaking about the the embryonic egg, uh, the, the, the thing which before we are us, that thing which we are. Uh, that is pure potential before the first gene folds and starts giving us blue eyes or brown eyes or brown hair, the potentiality that is everything. It is is the first sentence, Matt. Yeah, and like the trick of that is to see that and also see the surface aspect of it. Uh, And that's, I think, what I have trouble with. Yeah. And it's, and it's when, when they talk about the surface of the egg, I had in the past uh, very much, I read that as the shell. <laughs> yeah, right. Because you, you need something to be a recording surface. Yes. Uh, whereas they're speaking in far more, I would say, poetic and metaphorical terms and everything that they're discussing here when they talk about uh, the potentiality of the egg, the relationships of intensities through which the subject passes the body without organs. When, when the subject makes his way through this, it isn't that he's literally stepping through an egg. There isn't the shape of a shell. It doesn't have a slightly more pointed in and a rounded end, uh, all of which I thought were very important the first few times I've read this, and now I don't know what to think. Sure. But, so in the French, do they, they do use the word egg, though. Uh, as uh, I think it's copied in the chat, um, they don't use the word if uh, for it specifically, which is chicken egg, uh, which is not a literal egg, uh, at least as I uh, understand the translation. We have a Roger did a quick chat with us earlier and he's not able to join us right now. Yeah. Uh, but he was talking through sort of the original translation and that they use the term uh, quite often uh, more embryonic or embryo is, is a better translation rather than egg specifically. Mm-hmm. So I think so, part of it, like it's a really weird reference, right? Um, 
But yes. one of but I mean, there's probably two two things to bear in mind with Blurs and Katari. One is that they, I think I said, I said this before on a text chat, um, Deleuze and Katari really don't like the use of metaphors. Um, the way in which they use um, the strange terminology they come up with, like body about organs, um, they specifically design this stuff most of the time to try and collapse the distinction between uh, the concept and the signifier which expresses the concept. Um, so they try, they try to kind of collapse this boundary and make something that's, that's a little bit more direct um, and the egg thing is is strange but I think the sentences afterwards for me at least the way I read it when it says you know um, crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones localised with areas and fields measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials marked by thresholds I think there is a kind of um, uh, geometric element to this um, in the way in which it's there isn't this clear uh, these clear, uh, how to put it, like borders or boundaries, um, and so the way in which it, it ends up sort of being measured or articulated is in a slightly more, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a slightly different way. It's a really weird reference. I don't know if it even necessarily helps. It hasn't made a difference to me in terms of the egg, but it's a very weird one. Yeah, I mean, I always find it strange that they're talking about eggs. When I first read it, I thought they were talking about, oh, you know, the egg is a bunch of potentials to occur in a different set of uh, contingent scenarios. Uh, one helpful way I've been trying to visualize this, and I, and I paraphrase by saying this is probably wrong, I mean, it's probably definitely not correct, is I've been thinking about it, the body without organs as a graph, as in the recording surfaces, uh, when, when it gets recorded on, then you could easily... Because you know it's not it's not differentiated in the same way that the that Lacan's object petit uh, or Freud's understanding of repetition is differentiated. It's all happening uh, synchronistically, as like uh, Saussure would put it. I, I I think one of the most important words here is that when they specify nomadic subject, because. Uh, um, in difference and repetition, they make it a great deal to, to talk about a nomadic distribution and versus a sedentary distribution. So, I mean, and a sedentary distribution can only be understood retroactively. So what you have at the very beginning is a nomadic distribution. And if they're going to talk about the subject being understood very retroactively, I understand the nomadic, the nomadic subject being put on the body without organs as the primary a priori, not a priori, the primary sort of thing that's there before, uh, before you actually get your identity and that's the synthesis of that's what it was. So I'd just like to mention that, uh, uh, you know, they're talking about embryology here. And in the embryo, when it starts differentiating, there's a lot happening without there being uh, visible differentiation. And so, uh, and so when, when they're talking about the egg, I think they're talking about that state where the, the visible differentiation of the egg hasn't occurred yet, but there's a lot of dynamics going on. And those dynamics are based on potentials that are in the, uh, uh, within the egg. You know, it's not just DNA that determines the, uh, the, how the, uh, the egg develops. There's this also this epi epigen epigenome that the, the egg itself carries with it information as a context. And then the DNA plays out within that context to cause these 
various potentials and dynamics as those potentials are actuated. And then eventually that starts causing the folding and the partitioning of that, that body of the egg, uh, of the embryo, um, until you start to see something. So I think it's that state, that undifferentiated state that they're talking about. But we also see it as sort of uh, geometric, I think, as Matt or someone had said, because it seems to me like they're constantly talking about the triangle and the problem with the triangle. And in a way, they want to get away from maybe an idea of like a circle being a very kind of neat way of thinking about forces moving around and, and interacting with each other. Whereas with an egg, as they say, there's there's localized areas and fields and, you know, it's an oval shape. It's not a perfect circle and things build up and circulate in an imperfect and kind of uh, irregular way, which I wonder if that might be part of what they're getting at. Yeah, thank, that, that's what I was sort of trying to get at, but thank you. You put it much more articulately than I did. So another thing is that like in geometry, um, you know, you got zero dimensional, one dimensional, two dimensional and so forth. So. So the, the zeroth dimension is the is the points. And then if you take all of the points in the surface, then you get uh, topologies of those points before before there even comes up to be a line or a or a surface or a a, a solid. And so in geometry there's these undefinables because they are not defined in the axioms of geometry. And 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 the that those undefinables start off with this uh, undifferentiated state of the zero zero dimension. Yeah, my suggestion actually would be that we carry on the reading because I think that this gets a little. I think this gets a little bit clearer as we go on. Actually, it, it, agreed. Uh, it's it's worth going over just to make sure because yeah, sure. It's it's just one of those things that I've always read this literally as an egg, and I just want to make sure no one else made that mistake. Jack, you had something else you wanted to jump in real quick? Yeah, as we move on, I just wanted to point out that I, I think what's important here is, right, they're talking about the aid to teach us about the body without organs, right, and how we can kind of pick up on this um, undifferentiated mass that's inserted into production that has the recording uh, potentiality, right, where it's expanding from, um, you know, the last sentence of the previous section about the Freudian rock. Um, so like, if you think about consumption and consummation, right, what I'm reading here is they're talking about insemination and in that, um, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, reproduction. They're talking about sperm fertilizing an egg, right? And so the sperm, I think, uh, I think the sperm is kind of like what they're using to explain the idea of um, becoming in a sense with the, when they talk about um a schizophrenic process, such a voyage of initiation, a transcendental experience of the loss of the ego. Right. So I think that's kind of what they're getting at in terms of like the consummating and the consumption. I, I just like yeah. to mention one one other thing before we go on. Uh, <clears throat> there's another example, which is the concept of the singular. So uh, this the Kant uh, talks about this. The singular is uh, like space or space-time. It's singular. There's only one of them, and it's undifferentiated. And in uh, in Plato's uh, Timaeus, uh, this is uh, the there's the there's the idea of the chora as being the um, 
uh, the, the, you know, for for uh, for Plato, it, it was the the space that receives the uh, the insemination by the demiurge uh, in order to create forms. But that cora or receptacle um, is talked about in the Timaeus, which is which is the singular of space-time, and so. One of the th- one of the ways to interpret this is that um, you can see the human body as a singular, and within that singular, it's filled and uh, with uh, the pervasion of uh, feelings and sensations, and so that's another way of thinking about this egg concept. Mm. Uh, who would like to uh, jump into the next chapter, next next paragraph? Oh, can I just add one thing on to uh, what Jack of Hearts said uh, about... You can if you start reading the next paragraph immediately after. Yeah, I can do that for sure. I have a great voice. Um, yeah, regarding um, the uh, Freudian Ananke and the sperm as the uh, yeah creative uh, mode of the conjunctive process... Con- uh, sorry, yeah, conjunctive synthesis, this uh, consummation process, I think... That's exactly the move they want us to make to get away from the Freudian, the death drive, uh, the castration, where the uh, consummation would be the removal of the genitalia upon the Ananke. We are also of a mind to believe that everything commingles in these intense becomings, passages, and migrations. All this drift that ascends and descends the flows of time, countries, races, families, parental appellations, divine appellations, geographical and historical designations, and even miscellaneous news items. I feel that. I am becoming God. I am becoming woman. I was Joan of Arc, and I am Heliogabalus, and the great Mongol. I am a Chinaman, a redskin, a Templar. I was my father, and I was my son. And all the criminals, the whole list of criminals, the decent criminals, and the scoundrels, Sandy rather than Freud and his Oedipus. Perhaps it's by trying to be worm that I'll finally succeed in being Mahud. Then I'll have to, all I'll have to do is be worm, which no doubt I shall achieve by trying to be Jones. Then all I'll have to do is be Jones. But if everything commingles in this fashion, it does so in intensity, with no confusion of space and forms, since these have indeed been undone on behalf of a new order, the intense and intensive order. All that is solid melts into air. That's basically, yes. Sorry, I'm reading. uh, If you're not reading through the discussion chat live, we're having some great discussions. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and keep reading because I think uh, it's probably about two more paragraphs. Then we take a break because it's a lot of stuff through these that I think explains the previous or continues the commentary. What is the nature of this order? The first things to be distributed on the body without organs are races, cultures, and their gods. The fact has often been overlooked that the schizo indeed participates in history. He hallucinates and raves universal history and proliferally proliferates the races. All delirium is racial, which does not necessarily mean racist. It is not a matter of the regions of the body without organs, represented races and cultures. The full body does not represent anything at all. 
On the contrary, the races and cultures designate regions on this body. That is, zones of intensities, fields of potentials, phenomena of individualization and sexualization are produced within these fields. We pass from one field to another by crossing thresholds. We never stop migrating. We become other individuals as well as other sexes, and departing becomes as easy as being born or dying. Along the way, we struggle against other races. We destroy civilization. In the manner of the great migrants in whose wake nothing is left standing once they have passed through. Although these destructions can be brought about, as we shall see, in two different, very different ways. Uh, I'll continue. The crossing of a threshold entails ravages elsewhere. How could it be else otherwise? The body without organs closes round the deserted places. The theater of cruelty cannot be separated from the struggle against our culture, from the confrontation of the races, and from our toad's great migration towards Mexico, its forces, and its religions. Individuations are produced only within fields of forces expressly defined by intensive vibrations, and that animate cruel personages only insofar as they are induced organs, parts of desiring machines, mannequins. A season in hell, how could it be separated from denunciations of European families, from the call for destructions that don't come quickly enough, from the admiration for the convict, for the intense crossing of the thresholds of history, and from this prodigious migration, this becoming woman, this becoming Scandinavian or Mongol, this displacement of races and continents, this feeling of raw intensity that presides over delirium as well as over hallucinations, and especially this deliberate, stubborn material will be, will, this, this deliberate, stubborn material will to be of a race inferior for all eternity. I have known every son of good birth. I have never been of this people. I have never been Christian. Yes, my eyes are closed to your light. I am a beast, a Negro. Should we continue the next one or should we have a moment to stop for a moment? It's a, because there's a lot in those two. There's a lot in those two. Yeah, I mean, the next one's going to be a long paragraph anyway. So, Yeah, I, I, I felt like reading these two should be done together because, well, the next one yeah. is also is a long paragraph. And these two seem to fit together under sort of the same meaning. But I wanted to go over one of the sentences that starts it off uh, because we spent so long on the first sentence of the chapter. Why not the first sentence of this grouping? Uh, the first things to be distributed on the body without organs are races, cultures, and their gods. It's an interesting one. I mean, I, I wonder if this relates to the third chapter. Um, obviously, I don't want to preempt you know, our discussion here, but in the next big chapter of Anti-Oedipus, um, put it this way, um, it, they've got three questions here, right, in Anti-Oedipus. The first thing is, how does the unconscious work? The second one is, how does psychoanalysis repress the unconscious? And the third question is, what kind of economic, political forces produce this situation, right? Um, and that, that last question is what they deal with in Chapter 3. And so what they do there is they start tracing the um, these kind of three different configurations of society. Um, they, they draw on uh, Clustra, um, who we talked about um, quite a few weeks ago here on the server. Um, and so I wonder if that maybe fits into it, is this sort of distributions of um, the way in which races, cultures, and gods map into uh, map onto um, the forms of oppression, um, repression, um, 
and production in, in society. Um, there may be a parallel there, but I don't know if we'll be able to unravel that until we really dig into that later. But that's just a thought for now. No, and I, I think, uh, I mean, chapter three gets into, uh, there's a lot of ways that we could spend time analyzing this. And I think chapter three, as you said, really does get into a lot more of the specificity around the order of these things and how they come to be and the specific recording of them. Uh, this section specifically feels like, and I think someone nailed it in the chat, um, that prior to this, they were doing things to basically uh, uh, throw the, well, pardon me, um, they were spending time throwing the uh, the uh, id uh, out and, and spending a lot of time sort of displacing that. And now they're spending time displacing the ego. And I think that's a really fair way to look at this entire section, actually, that they're spending time, really spending time about how the schizo exists and how he makes his moves around uh, sort of all these different potentialities that he's sitting within and how those potentialities come forth through him. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I just like to mention that, uh, you know, a kind of key figure that uh, I think that uh, Deleuze is hearkening back to on a regular basis is uh, Dumazil, who was famous for uh, kind of cracking the code of Indo-European mythology and showing how all of the different Indo-European societies had these basic functions within their societies that determined their castes and their gods. And so um, prehistory is seen as uh, uh, migrations of peoples, like the Indo-Europeans, for instance, they uh, started out above the Caspian and Black Sea and kind of took over the whole world. And so there's this huge migration, um, and, uh, and and took it and took their their gods and their social structure wherever they uh, went on horses, and um, and so and then it transformed along the way, and Dumazil kind of figured out the structural code underlying that, and so. And so in prehistory, there are these huge migrations that are happening, like, for instance, when uh, the, uh, 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 you know, agriculture was invented. It was invented in uh, eastern Turkey. And uh, and it, it so happens that they found out now that uh, the, those people uh, displaced the hunter-gatherers all through Europe. And it took them about 7,000 years to do that. So... Um, so the, the, the thing is that that's one huge migration of agriculture into Europe and then and then the Indo-Europeans came in and kind of took over and that was another huge migration. So in prehistory there were these huge migrations of of races with their cultures and their gods um, uh, superseding each other and taking over large swaths of territory. So worth asking before we get into the section uh, about uh, Zarathustra, where I'm sure a number of people here have so many opinions, um, is when they when they say things like, for example, the nature of this order, the first things distributed on the body without organs or races, cultures, and gods. Is there a overarching reference because they had spent a lot of time, especially in earlier chapters, talking about the body without organs as the space of potentiality? But the first thing that's recorded is that another way of saying the first collapse of the potential, the first uh, uh, the first collapse in of that waveform, if you want to use uh, shitty terminology from another uh, discipline. 
Um, is it is is that their reference here, or are they having a larger discussion about the implications of the races, cultures, and gods on that? Um, I I don't know if I have a direct answer to that, but if I could expand on what I meant by the displacement of the ego, right? And it might get into answering your question. Um, in the beginning of the book, they start by displacing the id and moving into desiring machines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, they've displaced the ego now. So as to say, right, the ego is no... So in the Freudian model, the ego regulates the id and redirects desire to the things that the id is actually supposed to want, right? But if you take that out and we, we displace the ego and we just have the body without organs and we're in this um, nomadic migration between threshold identities, thresholds of being and becoming, um, then you have a whole new potentiality that they're talking about through consummation and consumption. And so I think what kind of helps here is because they're drawing on our toe. Um, right? There's a great line about, because they reference Helio Gabalis, about our toe when he was writing that book him actually becoming Iliogabalus, and he would act out things as he was writing it and talk as he believed uh, Iliogabalus talked. A season in hell, how could it be separated from denunciations of European families from the call for destructions that don't come quickly enough, from the ad- from admiration from the convicts, so on and so on and so on. It's a, just an interesting little section. Um, we'll go ahead and uh, move on so we can keep charging ahead, but I'm sure someone will have uh, something to say about uh, Nietzsche. We have, we have a lot of Nietzsche people here. Nietzsche people. And can Zarathustra be separated from the grand politics and from the bringing to life of the races that leads Nietzsche to say, I'm not a German, I'm Polish. Here again, individuations are brought about solely within complexes of forces and determined persons as so many intensive states embodied in a criminal, ceaselessly passing beyond a threshold while destroying the factitious unity of a family and an ego. I am Prado. I am also Prado's father. I venture to say that I am also Lesseps. I wanted to give my Parisians, whom I love, a new idea, that of a decent criminal. I am also Chambige, also a decent criminal. The unpleasant thing, and one that nags at my modesty, is that at root, every name in history is I. Yet it was never a question of identifying oneself with personages, as when it is erroneously maintained that a madman takes himself for so-and-so, it is a question of something quite different. Identifying races, cultures, and gods with fields of intensity on the body without organs. Identifying personages with states that fill these fields and with effects that fulgurate within and traverse these fields. Whence the role of names with a magic all their own, there is no ego that identifies with races, peoples, and persons in a theater of representation, but proper names that identify races, peoples, and persons with regions, thresholds, or effects in a production of intensive quantities. The theory of proper names should not be conceived of in terms of representation. It refers instead to the class of effects, effects that are not a mere dependence on causes, but the occupation of a domain and the operation of a system of signs. This can be clearly seen in physics. 
where proper names designate such effects within the fields of potentials, the Joule effect, the Seebeck effect, the Kelvin effect. History is like physics, a Joan of Arc effect, a Heliogabalus effect, all the names of history and not the name of the father. Matt, I'm going to actually, uh, I'm going to actually call you out and actually ask you a question here. Okay. <laughs> um, this seems to be implying the idea that, uh, as he says more directly, uh, schizophrenic may take on the name of a person, and through taking on that person, they are then implying the races, the names, and everything. They don't take on that race, they take on the person. Is that a correct reading of how he's describing this? This is something I'm, I've, I've struggled with. Um, one thing that sticks out to me is the idea that um, that these, these refer to... Uh, sort of intensities on the body without organs, right? So in the previous paragraph, it says that um, uh, the full body does not represent anything at all. Um, races and cultures designate regions on this body. That is zones of intensities, fields of potentials. And I don't necessarily know how to pass this, um, this paragraph, except to say that perhaps what he's trying to get at is that insofar far as these identify anything, perhaps what they're identifying is a kind of intensity, um, a kind of experience which the schizo passes through. Um, and so it's less about um, any kind of um, determinate content which you might be able to compare to, you know, a, a given you know, actual, you know, uh, race or nation or region or whatever. And it's perhaps, perhaps what we're getting at is more a certain kind of of, of, of affect or intensity um, but I don't really understand it to be honest with you this, this, this bit here and uh, there was someone in the chat earlier who said like all of this bit here is really ripe for post-colonial reading <laughs> um, I don't know it's not been done yet but um, it, it's a tricky one I think this bit yeah, it's it's it seems to be what they're saying that um, uh, obviously when they're talking earlier, as you said, about intensities and they're talking about possibility spaces and these gradients. There's basically the implication is that races themselves are not uh, hard and fast, very simple, concrete things. That when I choose to be Brooks, uh, and I'm and I am Brooks, it's not that Brooks is Germanic. That's uh, you could trace me back genetically. I guess I am that, but instead I'm more American. But I'm not dead center American. That there's the reality is that I'm a series of different intensities of a lot of different racial implications, uh, country country based implications, uh, the the cultural implications and gods that have affected me. I am going in and out of in terms of intensity, but at no point am I directly identifying with them. Instead, I'm identifying with being Brooks as an ego inside of that. Yeah, I, I think the key bit really at, probably is, is that last sentence. History is like physics, a Joan of Arc effect, a Heliogabalus effect, all the names of history and not the name of the father. Um, to me, that's probably the key bit here, um, yes. because the to Deleuze and Guattari, I imagine that the the, the you know quote unquote schizo who um, you know experiences all these sort of uh, persons or names, um, for them this is a way of re- sort of reliving and trying to um, reestablish the father figure, right? To reconnect with the uh, father. Um, um, status. Whereas I suppose what they're trying to do here is that these aren't reducible down to um, uh, 
to, to this generality called this father figure. Like, this is one of the specific uh, poologisms that they, they accuse um, uh, psychoanalysis of, is that they take all of this diversity, <coughs> diversity of experiences and, and um, identifications and always it will find a way <laughs> of um, bringing it back to uh, the father, the mother, the child or whatever. So maybe that's the key bit here is that they are, these sort of states are passed through as their own field of intensity, not as a replacement or search for this lost father or whatever to internalize Oedipus, but in and of themselves. Maybe that's what we're trying to get at here. Yeah, and I think if, if we go back to the previous section as well, we talked a lot about, um, well, they, they talked about a lot on the triangulation within the Oedipal complex being uh, restrictive, repressive, all of that. Uh, here, to me, the not the name of the father, them, that's them directly calling out the idea of the triangulation, that the name of the father being, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, essentially uh, the name of the father is law, societal pressures, the controlling authority that the, the big other has over us uh, culturally and racially, uh, which would be two major implications of that, or God. Um, and it's saying uh, we don't have that triangulation. Instead, uh, we identify with the names of history, not the names of the father. It's not It's not that we're having a moment where we discuss, oh, the implications of cultural, religious France. Uh, when we talk about Joan of Arc, we're talking about Joan of Arc. That yeah. she, is our, she is our triangulation, not the name of the father she happened to be using at any given time. So I, I, yeah, I suspect so that's I, right. So I just like to say that, you know, if you have the singular body, then the singular body is uh, pervaded by all of these affects and feelings. Hmm. Um, and those affects and feelings differentiate, differentiate themselves so that they're so that you feel different sensations in different parts of your body. And and I think the implication here is that the schizophrenics, they're not actually identifying with these people so much as you they're trying to go beyond the normal representation of the ego and where where is the natural place to go well it's it's the different the the differentials between different egos and names in history and that's a way for them to try to understand the the differentiation of the field of affect within their singular body hmm I was going to say as well, I feel like just on the most simple level, this kind of goes back to what they've been repeating throughout the text, that rather than split desire into a sort of hallucinatory and imaginary form and its real effects, they're saying, and they say that it's not that the madman takes himself to be this person, but he's actually doing something else. There's something about the, the there's an actual effect, the, a direct uh, effect of libidinal investment into the world, I guess into the real by these different effects like there's the Joan of Arc effect Helio Babelis so that it's not just and I think a little bit later they use the example of Louis the 17th uh, a few pages later and and they kind of expand a little bit there saying that what is the what are the intensive states that one is able to pass through by invoking these different names uh, rather than thinking of them as roles 
that they play in order to deceive their unconscious or, or look away from the truth that's hidden beneath, that it's actually an enabling move. Like that we're, it's what we're saying, that allows them to continue passing through the, the circle, passing through states. They say here, triumphing over some as over his enemies, relishing over his, as his allies, collecting everywhere the fraudulent premium of his avatars. So I, I wonder if that's kind of the feeling of what they're going for. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, that that if if you're overwhelmed by feelings that are that are like transforming within the singular body, uh, and you're experiencing those, and then you try to reach for some other terminology to explain all of these different sensations that you're having, then the, thinking about it in terms of of the, these movements in history is kind of a way for people who are undergo, undergoing this experience in schizophrenia to come to terms with what's happening. If I could expand on that, I think this section really helped if we take the previous reference to the theater of cruelty and place what um, D&G are talking about in that context. Uh, that is to say, right, you have the difference between Nietzsche and Zarathustra, right? That first line draws that difference between Nietzsche, the German who actually is Polish, and uh, his character of Zarathustra, who I don't think really plays in in that game, right? Um, Nonetheless, you've got this question of becoming through consummation and consumption. So like when they're talking about um, the the, the Iliogobalus effect and all that, I'm almost reading this in light of um, sort of dramaturgy. That is to say, like, um, to go back to the example, Artaud took on the Iliogobalus effect when he was in the cafe. And if you take then the theater of cruelty, right, that's not an ego thing. That's almost like a sort of channeling, uh, a kind of becoming that doesn't take you away from a being, right? So it, it, to go back to like the example of like the ego, right? Um, it's not that Artaud is Iliogobalus, it's that Artaud isn't that uh, Arto is experiencing an Iliogobalus effect, and therefore uh, he produces those effects, right? This is part of the recording process, is Iliogobalus, and in some ways this is almost Jungian. Iliogobalus is recorded on the body without organs. It's something that can be consumed and consummated. So like, uh, right, going through the, uh, experiencing the Iliogobalus effect is a kind of consumption and a consummation, a kind of being consumed by Iliogobalus, but also consummating within it. So as to say, right, if you were to use an ego here, um, I have been Heliogobalus, or I am Heliogobalus. But it's not exactly working that way anymore because the ego is not playing that role. It's more so something you're feeling and experiencing as you are the distance transversing thresholds. It's a very different way of thinking about identity. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I just want to—I just like to like to correct something. Uh, you know, Ger- uh, Nietzsche was German, and he—he was—he was, he was uh, when he says I'm Polish, he was identifying with the underdogs in German politics. I was going to ask about that line because I was fairly certain he wasn't Polish, but I didn't want to speak up. Um, Interesting. Uh, we should we should, however, uh, continue on because this is uh, nine thousand pages of a single section that we will not get through today. Um, uh, Jack, why don't you give it a read? Everything has been said. Love to. 
Everything has been said about the paucity of reality, the loss of reality, the lack of content, contact with life, autism, and athemia. Schizophrenes themselves have said everything there is to say about this and have been quick to slip into the expected clinical mold. Dark world, growing desert, a solitary machine hums on the beach, an atomic factory installed in the desert. But if the body without organs is indeed this desert, it is an indivisible, non-decomposable distance over which the schizo glides in order to be everywhere something real is produced. Everywhere something real has been and will be produced. It is true that reality has ceased to be a principle. According to such a principle, the reality of the real was posed as a divisible abstract quantity, whereas the real was divided up into a into quantified unities, into distinct qualitative forms. But now the real is a product that envelops the distances within intensive quantities. The indivisible is enveloped and signifies that what, that what envelops it does not divide without changing its nature or form. The schizo has no principles. He is something only by being something else. He is manhood with a capital M, only by being capital W Worm, and capital W Worm only by being capital J Jones. He is a girl only by being an old man who is miming or simulating the girl, or rather, by being someone who is simulating an old man simulating a girl, or rather, by simulating someone, etc. This was already true of the completely oriental art of the Roman emperors, the Twelve Paranoiates, of Suetonius. In a great book by Jacques Besset, we encounter once again the double stroke of the schizo, the geographic exterior voyage following non-decomposable distances, and the interior historical voyage enveloping intensities. Christopher Columbus calms his mutinous crew and becomes admiral again only by simulating a false admiral who is simulating a whore who is dancing. So again, I think I'm actually going to uh, go back to Jack's point around the theater of cruelty. I think that's actually, I think that might be the best way for us to be looking at this because we're talking ultimately about a very different way of considering the ego and way of being. People uh, simulating an old man, simulating a girl, someone simulating someone. Uh, the reference here, just to mention it, when he says, uh, completely oriental art of the Roman emperors, the 12 par paranoiacs of Suetonius. Uh, Suetonius uh, wrote the 12 uh, emperors, I believe 12 emperors, uh, which is literally the story of all of the Caesars. Was it 12 Caesars? It's the 12 Caesars, probably. Um, but it's the story of all the 12 uh, leaders of the Roman Empire. And to call them... <laughs> To call them paranoiacs, I think, is, uh, I mean, accurate for sure. But I, I, I would just love if someone could explain a little bit more around that reference specifically, because my brain can't get. Well, they must have all been concerned with holding power. So, well, I'm sure it's 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 a great little quick reference because the the story is basically um, how they all did their best and were constantly uh, terrified of losing power. That's what the book's ultimately about, and from my reading of it. Um, and it's a it's a fascinating account on kind of what power does to a series of people. This might help. Um, in section one, 
Perception too, rather. The paranoiac machine is the avatar of the desiring machines. So, right, if we're if we're trying to understand the body without organ, uh, relative to consummating and um, consummating consumption uh, synthesis, right? Mm-hmm. I think it helps to look at that in terms of like the body without organs and its relationship to the desiring machines, um, which I, I think I can elaborate a little bit more on by focusing on this sentence. But if the body without organs is indeed this desert, is an, as an indivisible, non-decomposable distance over which the schizo glides in order to be everywhere, something real is produced. Everywhere something real has been and will be produced. Right, so that brings us back to the schizo gliding over the surface of recording and being in touch with that. So those 12 paranoia machines are part of that recording process. It's something we're able, it's something we're accessing or rather something that's accessing us. I want to, if I can, add, add two, two things. Firstly is that um, one of the things that Deleuze and Atari are trying to do with this book is to show that um, affect is real, right? Um, it's not imaginary in that sense. Um, and affect, we phrase it, desire, um, is real, produces reality. It produces the real, literally, right? They're really, really, really clear about this, um, the anti Desire produces the real. And so one of the interesting ways of comparing this, so Simulacra and Simulation was written, I think, like nine years after this book. But for me, it was kind of an interesting reference point for thinking about this. Um, just because, um, so in the paragraph we just read, they do use this idea of simulacra, right? And it's big for Deleuze in, in different repetition. We talked about Plato, but um, so Christopher Columbus calms his mutinous crew and becomes admiral again only by simulating a false admiral, admiral who is simulating a whore who is dancing, right? And so this is part of his critique of, of Plato is that if I remember off the top of my head that. Um, if you insist on the idea of a simulacra, at a certain point, it basically becomes um, impossible to distinguish between the copies and the real things. And so all you're left with is the real. Um, which is why, in I think, the next uh, two two or three sentences later, um, I think it's... Uh, yeah, so if identification is a nomination, a designation, then simulation is the writing corresponding to it, a writing that is strangely polyvocal, flush with the real. It carries the real beyond its principle, i.e. the reality principle of Freud, um, to the point where it is effectively produced by the desiring machine. The point where the copy ceases to be a copy in order to become the real and its artifice. so I wonder if that's maybe the the, the point here is that um, once we start thinking of affect and desire in a um, in a in a real sense, then we can start to understand the way in which um, you know quote unquote the schizo um, experiences this, such that um, it's not simply that they're mistaken or imagining or imagining it, but that they are genuinely producing and experiencing these things, and that it's impossible to. Um, uh, meaningfully distinguish between the simulacra and the real. They, they collapse back into one another in the end. And I think that, uh, I mean, Simulation and Simulacra was written, I mean, more than a decade, I think, after the book, after this book. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. It's, it's just a way so of thinking about it. No, no, it's it's fascinating because I, I was, I had to look it up because I was like, 
this feels like it was written contemporaneously with it. If the body without organs is indeed this desert, it is an indivisible, non-decomposable distance over which the schizo glides in order to be everywhere something real is produced. Uh, It feels like they're actually already talking about the desert of the real from the house. The other other thing I want to mention is that um, it is in in difference repetition, um, Deleuze uh, has an extended section where he talks about the concept of the simulacra um, and this is part of his critique of, of Plato and I'm afraid I can't remember off the top of my head maybe someone smarter than me like Kent might be able to remember this but um, just to repeat my understanding is that what he thinks is that once Plato starts distinguishing between the simulacra and the real um, at a certain point his argument basically collapses back in on itself such that it's, it's basically impossible to distinguish between the two and so it's just the real right um, so even if you you know, um, Baudrillard is maybe a, hu- a heuristic for interpreting it. But obviously, you know, uh, in terms of you know publishing dates, wouldn't make sense. But um, he does talk about the simulacra um, in the past, and he does talk about its relation to the real and the imaginary, and so on, um, in in different repetitions. So maybe not entirely irrelevant. Well, uh, what what you said is right. Um, but one of the things I'd uh, like to mention about this. Uh, paragraph is the is the use of the term enveloping and so uh, this to me reminds me of wild being uh, because the characteristic of wild being is encompassing because uh, in hyper being or difference things are uh, possibilities are expanding whereas in wild being possibilities are collapsing and so the, the that collapsing of the possibilities, uh, and con- and constriction um, is is something that envelops you completely, and so um, and so I, I think that this is a kind of uh, one of the key places where you can say that he's specifically talking about wild being. So you you think that wild being is characteristic of the schizophrenic? Uh, so so see what's you know the uh, the body without organs is the zeroth. Um, body, which is the singular, and and so and so, as you are collapsing down toward that singular, right? Your your possibilities are are becoming more and more constrained, and and that 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 that's the nature of wild being is that the, that process of collapse. This comes from uh, Merleau Ponte uh, in the uh, phenomenology of perception and. Uh, the, the visible and the invisible. All right, uh, let us continue. Uh, because we already started reading part of the next section, I'll go ahead and dive in. But simulation must be understood in the same way as we spoke of identification. It expresses those non-decomposable distances always enveloped in the intensities that divide into one another while changing their form. If if identification is a nomination, a designation, then simulation is the writing corresponding to it, a writing that is strangely polyvocal, flush with the real. It carries the real beyond its principle to the point where it is effectively produced by the desiring machine. The point where the copy ceases to be a copy in order to become the real and its artifice. To seize an intensive real as produced in the coextension of nature and history, to ransack the Roman Empire, the Mexican cities, the Greek gods, 
and the discovered continents so as to extract from them this always surplus reality and to form the treasure of the paranoiac tortures and the celebrate the celibate glories all the pogroms of history that's what i am and all the triumphs too as if a very few simple univocal events could be extricated from this extreme polyvocity. Such is the histrionism, the histrionism of the schizophrenic. According to Klosowski's formula, the true program for a theater of cruelty, the mason scene of a machine to produce the real. Far from having lost who knows what contact with life. Uh, sorry, I'll re-say that. Far from having lost who knows what contact with life, the schizophrenic is closest to the beating heart of reality, to an intense point identical with the production of the real. And that leads Reich to say, what belongs specifically to the schizophrenic patient is that he experiences the vital biology of the body. With respect to their experiencing of life, the neurotic patient and the perverted individual are to the schizophrenic as the petty thief is to the daring safecracker. So the question returns, what reduces the schizophrenic to his autistic, hospitalized profile cut off from reality? Is it the process, or is it rather the interruption of the process, its aggravation, its continuation in the void? What forces the schizophrenic to withdraw to a body without organs that has become deaf, dumb, and blind? And I, I, the answer they're going to start giving here uh, sometime in the next 10 chapters. But um, this to go just really quick back, um, obviously, the, the concept of theater of cruelty uh, was a good insight there, um, Jack. So uh, could I mention that uh, I think this is one of the places that I've given evidence that uh, Deleuze is absorbing the ideas of Derrida and this whole idea of writing. And, and basically and basically he's absorbing it by identifying it with his idea of the uh, the simulacrum did we lose you did we lose you no I just stopped sorry oh, okay it sounded like you stopped mid thought I wanted to make sure um, uh, I mean I mean I could elaborate but it, but it, it's just it's just that uh, you know Taylor Adkins was uh, questioning whether or not you know, uh, Deleuze is influenced by Derrida. So I think this is this is one example. And when we get to drifting, I'll bring that up as another example of uh, Derrida's ideas infiltrating into Deleuze's thought. I, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to ask a question. Yeah, can you, you talked about uh, the simulacrum? Uh, I'm not informed to how his version is different from um, like Baudrillard's. Sorry, who's there? It is. There it is. Oh, oh, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about uh, right, him talking about writing here, and how uh, and how uh, the writing is connected to the simulacrum. Deleuze is connecting it in his mind. What I, what Derrida is saying about writing, he's saying, well, that's the simulacrum to me. Got it. Thank you. I, I also think Matt, um, it's worth uh, Matt's Matt's previous point. I'm just going to restate out loud because we have people listening who aren't part of the chat. Uh, so I'm just going to quote you directly, Matt, if you don't mind, or you can say it if you want. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I'm happy to. Yeah. 
So the point for me, so obviously there is this chronolog- chronological error there, right? Which I was pretty upfront about, like Baudrillard wrote Simonarchan Simulation after this book, right? So on the one hand, that's a heuristic device, right? Because it might be that someone here or someone listening already knows a bit of Baudrillard. And so we can see maybe from that comparison that um, this blurring of the real and the simulacra that's going on in Deleuze, because Deleuze does not draw a distinction between the two. He's very clear about a difference in difference repetition, right? Um, but for me, that's a point in this last section we're just reading, right? Um, because because he doesn't distinguish between the simulacra and the real, it's actually meaningless to say to a schizo, oh, you know, you aren't really a king, right? Um, doesn't he realize that he's not a king? Um, because going back to what we, what we read even earlier, um, king doesn't refer to a proper name, right? It's a zone of intensity on the body of our organs. And therefore, it's also a real production, a real affect. Um, and exactly in that sense, this is what they talk about, like a schizo soaring over this field of like real intensities and experiencing them, right? Um, that's what's going on. And so this is why you get this weird, like, sort of Baudrillardish, like Derrida-ish sort of thing, which Ken was talking about, like with this idea of a simulacra, because for them, for Deleuze, like, there's no difference. There is no difference between the simulacra and the real. It's one and the same thing. And so the schizo is essentially the one who experiences them as one and the same and just uh, sort of explores this field, basically. So it's not about... And I, I, I want to just add to that. It's not necessary to say that it's purely heuristic because it, uh, Lacan's concept conception of the real is very much similar, and they're very much talking about that same thing. The, the concept of simulation inside of that, I think, is much more in, in line with what you're talking about as a referential point. But I think it's it's I would be interested to see the original translation of this to see if they even use the word simulation directly. Um, yeah, I know. I, I'm pretty sure he does in different different repetition. But it might be that there's different words there going on, you know, um, in, in but, each text. But the underlying uh, concept here is to just say that the they're uh, in Lacanian terms almost they they're they're imaginary, not imaginary. Uh, yes, imaginary and uh, the real for the schizophrenic is the same, ultimately. And they're moving between the intensities rather than what we see as the actuals. To go back to its king or race or these various intensities that sort of exist on the body without organs, their ability to move between them freely because they aren't necessarily attached to them in the same way that other people are is the freeing experience for the schizo. Yeah, the, I think uh, in, in Plato's Sophist, the uh, the, the uh, uh, you know the uh, the Sophist is a a, a uh, the simulacra of the philosopher, and so and and basically what you get in Plato is uh, as he as he continues to define what the uh, the difference is, you start suspecting that there is no real difference between them. So it's a pl- it's a place of the collapse of categories. Well, and uh, their their next the next paragraph actually I think gives great a great specific example of what they're talking about. Uh, I'm going to dive in uh, because and we'll continue the discussion afterwards. This whole paragraph is about uh, schizo who believes he's uh, Louis the Eighteenth. We often hear it said he thinks he's Louis the Seventeenth. Uh, Not true. 
in the Louis XVII affair, or rather in the finest case, that of the pretender Richemont. There is a desiring machine, or a celibate machine, in the center. The horse with short, jointed paws, inside which they supposedly put the dauphin so he could flee. And then, all around, there are agents of production and anti-production, the organizers of the escape. The accomplices, the allied sovereigns, the revolutionary enemies, the jealous and hostile uncles, who are not persons, but so many states of rising and falling through which the pretender passes. Moreover, the pretender Richemont stroke of genius is not simply that he takes into account Louis XVII, or that he takes other pretenders into account by denouncing them as fake. What is so ingenious is that he takes other pretenders into account by assuming them, by authenticating them. That is to say, by making them two into states through which he passes. I am Louis the Seventeenth, but I am also Hervigal and Mar- Mathurin Bruneau, who claimed to be Louis the Seventeenth. Richemont doesn't identify with Louis the Seventeenth. He lays claim to the premium due the person who traverses all the singularities of the series converging around the machine for kidnapping Louis the Seventeenth. There is no ego at the center anymore. Then there are persons distributed on the periphery. Nothing but a series of singularities in the disjunctive network, or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue, and a transpositional subject moving full circle, passing through all the states, triumphing over some as over his enemies, relishing others as his allies, collecting everywhere the fraudulent premium of his avatars. Partial object, a well-situated scar ambiguous besides, is better proof than all the memories of childhood that the pretender lacks. The conjunctive synthesis can therefore be expressed, so I am the king, so the kingdom belongs to me. But this me is merely the residual subject that sweeps the circle and concludes itself from its oscillations on the circle. Uh, It's a a wonderful explanatory uh, paragraph because we're talking ultimately about a schizo who believes he's Louis XVII uh, who was kidnapped and uh, a lot of people were imposters it's very similar to uh, being the Lindbergh baby in the you know 1920s and 30s a lot of people came out and said that um, uh, not just scam artists people who genuinely believed it and the paragraph essentially is going over this is not about them identifying fully that they themselves are this person but instead that they are passing through the intensities that represent that person and place them in the in the place that they exist the the power structures the the network the intensive states uh and the the location of that subject on the body without organs that's what the schizophrenics done in this case this is how i read that uh section so i am could i offer a please I was just going to say, uh, not to be pedantic because I'm barely understanding these things, but I wonder if that is a great teachable moment in what you said of saying uh, these different things that represent the these states, which I think kind of goes back to, I just in my head as I'm thinking about it, uh, I think would, would not D&G kind of contest that and say it's not that they represent states, it's that they are, they are those states, you know, the states that those people went through and experienced in their lifetimes is a kind of effect the way these, you know, a scientific effect would have existed 
as a form of observation in the, in the time that it happened and if you talk about it later. But it's not uh, representing anything. It's just, yeah, I, I, I know I'm talking myself in a circle here, but it just was an interesting way because our tendency is to talk in that way. So this represents that. But that's kind of the bi-univocality thing that they seem to be always critiquing. And, and they're, they're referenced directly to the, the partial scar, the partial object of the well-placed scar, this one scar that happens to fit the entire giant puzzle of whether or not this person is Louis Seventeenth. It's one well-placed scar that's ambiguous in every single way, but it just happens to be kind of in the right location. And that, therefore, is – that's proof. I'm, do you see the fucking scar? I'm, I'm obviously Louis. This is, this is who I am. I mean, I don't have any of those memories, but this partial object is proof, and I'm able to move through all of these intensities clearly and freely and openly. And a, a famous example of that is uh, Odysseus's scar. Odysseus goes through a series of recognitions when he comes up on Syria, um, and that series of recognitions establishes who he is as the hero um, until he gets home. And when he gets home, it's the scar that he got when he went hunting with his grandfather from a boar that allows him to be recognized as who he is. So the scar on the body is deeply embedded in the Western tradition as a sign. Mm. So if, if it's okay, I want to dive in here um, because the, the last bit here, this is the point. This is the central bit of this uh, section. Um, the conjunctive synthesis can therefore be expressed, so I am the king, so the kingdom belongs to me. But the me is merely the residual subject that sweeps the circle and concludes itself from its oscillations on the circle. That's the key bit for um, Deleuze and Guattari here, um, my, my understanding is. Um, what they're trying to understand is the way in which subjectivity emerges, right, from this process, from these three syntheses. Subjectivity emerges on, <coughs> in and through this final one. Um, it emerges as the thing which um, sort of the after effect of the processes of production and anti-production, the thing which uh, consumes and consummates the energy and affects uh, and intensities produced by by this process, it always comes afterwards, but it's also inherent in subjectivity that it, 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 it constitutively misrecognizes itself. It goes from, so I am the king, which is true because it's the after effect of these, these, these affects, these, these intensities. So the kingdom belongs to me, which is, that's, that's the misrecognition bit. Right, that's the bit where it falsely um, comes to believe that it was responsible for the things that it felt. Uh, or, you know, uh, experienced, right? Um, and that, that's the key bit for them, is that subjectivity is this weird kind of um, ideological after-effect of the um, combined forces of, of production and anti-production. It's And so this is why I said earlier also in the chat that um, it's Nietzschean. This, like, if you've read Nietzsche, you know, like, this is exactly what they um, what Nietzsche says as well, which is that who you are at any given moment is essentially the contingent um, effect of a, uh, a sort of battle of wills within you, right? And so, who you are is just one will or form of will, or whatever, um, winning out at any given moment, and that's essentially what they're taking to 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 psychology, to to the subject here is um, you don't control your intensities, you don't control your um, affects in that way. You are the product of them and you come after, but it's part of subjectivity that 
we always misrecognize that. Um, so I'm sorry for rambling on, but I wanted to just underline that because for me, that's a really, really key point about this chapter. And I go into it more later, but um, just because, you know, it's easy, easy to get caught up in the strange sort of references here. Um, and that's, for me, the key point to what they're saying. And I just like to say that, uh, you know, just as a, a kind of a gesture uh, toward the sophistication of what's being said here, this example of a circle suggests uh, Spinoza's idea of adequate ideas. And, uh, and also Locke had this idea of adequate ideas. And adequate ideas are ideas that bring their proof with them. So, so just having the idea of a circle is not enough. You have to have the ability to produce the circle by uh, sweeping the, 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 the radius through the circle around the point. And so that's an adequate, an adequate idea. And, uh, and Leibniz uh, added to that complete ideas where he says, well, you also have to bring the examples with you, like all of the, the, uh, the actual circles in the world, not just the idea of the circle. So there's these two, these two things, adequate ideas and complete ideas. And by using this example of the circle to define the ego, they're referencing back to these things that Spinoza and Locke are saying. It's. Um, I, I would also say, uh, although I, uh, one, thank you, Matt, because I, I think you're right. I do enjoy spending a little bit too much time in the referential stuff. But one that I think would be really uh, interesting to sort of uh, do sort of uh, a lens reading through would be uh, the Three Christs of Ypsilante, which I really enjoyed reading through, where you have three guys who are Jesus and they get put in the same hospital and then they're able to ultimately explain away the others as being obviously they're nuts they're in a mental hospital but i'm i am jesus christ uh the the ending of that but this me is merely the residual subject that sweeps the circle and concludes itself from its oscillation on the circle how it how it pushes the world how the world responds it's able to define the ego define who they are based on the responses of that is that close matt Yes, I, th I think so. I'm not necessarily familiar with the reference, but that, <clears throat> that makes sense to me. Um, another way of um, thinking about it, if anyone here is maybe familiar with um, Louis Althusser um, and his theory of ideology, um, he, he has a similar idea to this, and they were writing at a similar time in a similar milieu. Um, Althusser was also very interested in Spinoza, particularly towards the end of his life. Um, and he also has a similar idea that... that, that Subjectivity is essentially a kind of constitutive mis misrecognition, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's a kind of series of hailing by institutions and calls, um, which we can't um, escape from, because regardless whether your 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 responses, yeah, interpolation, yeah, um, regardless whether your response is like yes or no, positive or negative, it's still defined in some sort of relationship to that hailing. Um, so if anyone's familiar with Althusser, but it's maybe struggling to understand what's going on here, that's another way of thinking about it, I think. Well, the the great line out of uh, Three Christs of Ypsilante is uh, the guy who did the study where he put the three Christs in, and he did it originally to try to cure them because he believed, oh, if they can see that someone else has the same illusion, they'd be able to do something with it. Uh, he said that the only person who was cured was me out of my godlike delusion that I could manipulate them out of their beliefs. Uh, yeah, then that makes sense then, yeah. 
which I, I really liked. That 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 takeaway has always been one of my favorites. It's it's a worthwhile book. The movie Three Christ, not quite as good. It's got some good performances in it, but it's not quite as good as the book. So so I just like to say just that on this thing about the circle is that we usually take this the ego to be the cir- the center of the circle, right? But but what what the uh, the idea of adequate ideas is that unless you're sweeping through all of the other points around, then you don't get a real circle. You only have this idea of the circle without any grounding and a procedure to produce the circle. All right. Uh, Alyosha, why don't you go ahead and continue the reading? Because I'm going to be annoying like that. There's there's only one problem, which is I'm currently leaving my workplace and I don't have a PDF in front of me. Well, then why don't, the not, why don't you not uh, continue the reading then? Uh, not yeah, sorry, I can do it later. I can, I can read if you like. All right, go for it. Um, so this is um, All Delirium, right? All Delirium, yes. All Delirium possesses a world historical, political and racial content, mixing and sweeping across along races, cultures, continents and kingdoms. Some wonder whether this long drift merely constitutes a derivative of Oedipus. The familial order explodes. Families are challenged. Son, father, mother, sister. Quote, I mean those families like my own, that owe all to the declaration of the rights of man. When I seek out my most profound opposite, I always encounter my mother and my sister. To see myself related to such German rabble is, as it were, a blasphemy with respect to my doctrine of the end of eternal return. End quote. It's the question of knowing if the historico-political, the racial and the cultural, are merely part of a manifest content and formally depend on a work of elaboration, or if, on the contrary, this content should be followed as a thread of latency that the order of families hides from us. Should the rupture with families be taken as a sort of familial romance, but would indeed bring us back again to families and refer us to an event or a structural determination inside a family itself? Or is this rather a sign that the problem must be raised in a completely different manner, because it is already raised elsewhere for the schizo himself outside the family? Are the names of history derivatives of the name of a father? and other races, cultures, and continents substitutes for daddy mummy, dependent on the Oedipal genealogy. Is history signifier the dead father? So I'd like to just mention that, uh, you know, in our times, what's happening with the COVID-19 is that the people who go into ICU are experiencing delirium. You know, it, it seems like the statistics are such that if you go into ICU and you are put on a ventilator, then 80% chance you're going to die. But the other thing is that even if you recovered, you have um, have experienced delirium probably, and uh, that has long-term consequences for your mental health. So, so what I'm trying to say is that in our time, this question of delirium is taking on a more... Uh, uh, important value given what's happening. All delirium possesses a world historical, political, and racial content, mixing and sweeping along races, cultures, continents, and kingdoms. Some wonder whether this long drift merely constitutes a derivative of Oedipus. <sighs> So, uh, I mean, the quotes from Rimbaud are throughout this. Uh, 
what is the first one? I mean, I mean, those families like my own that all owe all to the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Uh, non-manifest called that out instantly. But when I seek my most profound opposite, I always encounter my mother and my sister. To see myself related to such German rabble is, as it were, a blasphemy with respect to my doctrine of the eternal return. I have no idea what that's a reference to. So, so he, he wrote um, uh, some things in letters about his mother and his sister. Uh, Jack, why don't you go ahead and, uh, instead of typing, go ahead and jump in here. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Or No, no, uh, bring up what you're talking about in, oh, in the chat. So, not everyone um, So I was disagreeing that uh, subjective, uh, subjectivity is an after effect. That is to say, uh, I think what you mean is an after effect of the the effect. And, and so what I mean is, um, like I said, I'm thinking about this in terms of the theater of cruelty, right, which is placed vis-a-vis uh, not only the political but the social in Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, maybe not for Artaud, but I think for Deleuze and Guattari, that's very clear. And so like when they're talking about um, Columbus going through the admiral effect, going through the, the whore effect, um, what, I'm, what I'm seeing there is what we used to call the ego, now we're calling the subject, moving through these different um, intensities, through these simulatings, uh, which is why I, I'm so tempted to compare it to Jung there. Um, but it's, it's in that that you have the production of the real, which is um, effectively, right, this is just what acting is, in a sense. So, like, what does an actor do? They, they refer to a script... And they have this effect of it, of the character. And that effect leads to affect, which is um, part of the production of the real. And so what I'm saying is that um, I think subjectivity is the experiencing and the moving between those intensities and effects. Um, I agree. I don't see I mean, I I agree with you. Um, Go ahead. So the reason why I say it's an after effect is to designate the sort of um, the post hoc sort of um, element of it, right? Because it's really important um, as we go through this to understand the that this is a constitutive misrecognition on the part of the subject. Um, Could I suggest maybe um, side effect here instead of after effect then? Yeah, that's one way of saying it. Um, I use after effect simply because it, it designates a kind of like linear way of thinking about it because um, for Deleuze and Guattari, it does always come after the production and anti-reduction processes. Um, it's a, it's mm. a third synthesis, right? Um, and why the reason why it's a constitutive mess recognition is in that quote about the um, the king. Uh, maybe I can find it. Uh, yeah, here we go. So I am the king. And in the first stage, it, it sort of recognizes these experiences, right? As as Jack said, so as it's sort of passing through these intensities, it sort of has these experiences, right? But then it goes from that to saying, so the kingdom belongs to me and that's the really other that's the key part that's why it's not just so i am the king it's also so the kingdom belongs to me because the subject always misrecognizes itself as the source of these intensities which is also how they link in the miraculating machine um as the sort of machine which it you know um uh deems itself the sources of all of these things and how they then go on in the third chapter to talk about capital under capitalism so that's exactly how they think capital yeah. works is that where they'll get to what happens to the subject that kind of sees through this production already and sees well the kingdom never really belonged to the king in the first place so 
Yeah. Yeah. So what they what they think happened? I'm not. I don't want to go into too much detail because we're going to yeah. preempt ourselves here. But basically, in chapter three, what they're going to say is that capital operates in exactly this way. This is the um, uh, falling back on effect we discussed in previous weeks, right? Where capital appears in this sense as the origin of the value that is produced, right? Um, and it's the exact same thing in a, in a sort of analogical way. Um, and that's why I think it's important. At least in terms of how I've understood it, right? I could, it could be that I completely misunderstood the book, right? Um, in which case, it's great. But at least for me, I think that that's the way I think you can draw these parallels and see the spiral they're making with these book, with this book, right? Um, that I, I absolutely agree with Jack, right? That the subject, you know, after effects, kind of a, you know, it's just kind of like vague phrase. But what I'm trying to get at is it emerges afterwards. It's constituted through these experiences, but it's always of this sort of misrecognition of its sort of. A, of itself as a source of the experiences but of course as Deleuze and Guattari point out and they've done for the last two chapters um, the subject isn't the source of the experiences right <laughs> it's the design machines and the, and the um, body of our organs um, and sort of the interplay between these things um, and that's why they make this move later and it's important that, that they do because that's how they explain the way in which capital um, moves through this procedure of sort of miraculated production of uh, falling back upon production um, they have to establish parallels early and then move over to that that's my reading anyway but please if, if someone disagrees with me please please do go I, want to be no, I, I, I don't think you'll necessarily get anyone uh, disagreeing with that I think that's uh, I, that's how I've taken it in the past that generally what we're talking about now is we're talking about how the socius operates which in our time is capitalism is capital process there um, uh, well Jack disagrees okay we'll get we'll get back to you but let me, let me finish real quick um, a lot of the what they're discussing here and as they've been talking is actually how people identify and they've been using very specifically uh, races rulers kings what is probably previously been seen as the socius prior to capital. And so they've been very deliberate in this chapter to actually use a lot of examples that uh, sort of lead into capital, which they get into in, in chapter three. So I think your readings generally, uh, I'm gonna agree with, but Jack, please, why don't you dive in? Yeah, please. Yeah, I think there's, at some level, I, I see where you're coming from, but I think there's, something very important there where the ego is not at the center any more than there are persons distributed on the periphery. They go on to write, um, let me see here. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, mean, that, that's, that, I, th I thought that was what we we're sort of getting at with the, where sort of the subject appears as the, as the experience of these intensities, right? It's not an ego at the center, it's a kind of peripheral movement around the edges, sort of feeding off the, off, off what's going on, you know, uh, before it. Right, but where I'm, I'm kind of, because um, I agree with you, right? Like the ego is not the source of the kingdom belonging to itself. It's the conjunctive synthesis going through the, in, in, in contrast to the, um, the disjunctive that they call out there, where they write um, nothing but a si series of singularities in the disjunctive network or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue. Right, so I, I think where I'm kind of having trouble is like um, it, it almost sounds like you're saying subjectivity is produced with the real but I think subjectivity is the very um, experience of it. it is the nomadic uh, quality they're talking about 
inside. Ah. Right, no, in that case, um, if that's what I was saying, then no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. That, that's why I've used the word nomadic, right? It's this very strange, like, fleeting... Um, uh, the, reason I, the reason why I use the production is that it's only possible because of these first two syntheses, right? Um, and it comes after them in this kind of... If, if it's possible to get, like, a chronological view of it, um, and that it, it sort of exists through the consumption, uh, the consummation consumption of these intensities as you say so i actually don't think we disagree it's probably that i'm being a little bit in some ways lax in my language but i think we agree i don't think it's chronological though i think it's simultaneous it's it's it seems to me they're talking about pure feeling pure experience so like um right like the, when you take on the subjectivity of the king i see that as being consummated with looking for a kingdom that's the consummating act Right. That is with the consumption yeah. of being the king. No, that's a great point. That's a really, really good point, actually. Um, it, it probably isn't helpful to think in a, in a chronological way. Um, I think I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would maintain that I'm probably right on the rest of it, but I think that's a really good point, though. Um, it's not about the, the sort of chron chronology of it. It's about the fact that it, it's, it's literally through the experience of the intensities. Like, the experience of the intensities almost is the, is the subject, right? Um, and that's why it's always this weird fleeting thing, which um, which is also part of this misrecognition. Right, and that's and that's important because the, that means that the the king and the production of the the kingdom that is part of the real. So it's all simultaneous. It's all right. Yeah. They they stress that it's something you feel. You don't think it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for picking me up on that, honestly, because. Like, that actually goes back to the thing I was saying earlier, right, about this um, uh, person who, uh, the schizo or whatever, who, who, who experiences all these different states, right, um, is the, and, and, the, and the collapse of the boundary between the simulacra and the real. Um, it, there, is, there is no distinction. I don't know if we have time for me to respond to that. <laughs> we, we, we do, actually, because I think this is, it's this, this, when, we aren't going to be able to make it through this the rest of this section. So let's just make sure we have the best discussion we can have. Because I have another question about the way that this uh, paragraph ends before we get going on to Judge Schraber, which we have to get to today. So please, Jack, respond. So when you say simulacra, I think you've got to be careful. But if, if you're talking about the simulating that is the subjectivity which produces the real, I think that's exactly right. Um, so the, the, you think that so the subjectivity is is a simulation. The subjectivity moves with the simulation, right? It's part of the consummation and the consumption synthesis, right? So when you when ah, okay, is, in, that, in that case, in that case, sorry, but in that case, we need to be careful there then, because um, yeah. uh, simulation and, and, and the idea of a simulacra has quite a specific meaning as well, right? Um, and that's my worry is if you move with simulacra you're invoking all these other you know we, we got to stay away from Baudrillard and I, I would even argue Plato there because they just right the translators leave it at simulation simulating right if you move ah. into the simulacra we're moving into a, a metaphysical argument um, that brings in new speakers and that's my fear is we're going to miss the point okay um, so the reason I use it is that um, 
Deleuze in Difference Repetition um, explicitly engages with this concept through Plato um, in his critique of representation um, because he basically takes Plato to, to his logical conclusion and says that um, Kent again may, may remember this a little bit better than I do but he seems to think I was on the right track earlier he basically thinks that you take Plato to the right conclusion um, the difference between a, sim a simulation or a simulacra and the real um, it collapses right? there ends up being absolutely no difference um, and that's why I think um, draws together what we're talking about here in terms of the um, sorry the schizo experiencing all these states these uh, these races these kings these um, jealous uncles or whatever it's but um, once you you know um, elide that distinction and you start talking about uh, desire um, as production and the real as the production of desire and, and so on you know in a circular way um, once you start <clears throat> doing that um, that sort of builds an argument for them in terms of how this, the, the schizo experiences these things um, but I, I think that's I think I agree I agree with you that subjectivity is like it is it is the experience of these intensities right these affects um, it's not like a chronological thing which sort of comes you know you have step one and then you have step two and then you've got step three uh, it's all imminent um, it's all imminent I was so thank you I was actually going to say that's ultimately what we've got to come back to because I mean that's everything Deleuze talks about is is this the plane of eminence that we exist on that all existence is on and if we're talking about that in this form i'm going to try to say this a third way because uh, again i don't want to spend too long on this but this is we've now gone into some pretty important territory um so the idea is uh, the subject the schizo the person who's making his way through existence it's not so much that anything has a causal relationship directly but more that at any given moment the subject is existing in response to uh the the thing this the items around him the the waves around him the intensities around him that are foisted upon him by the body without organs the egg as they may say uh and the, these possibility spaces exist around all of us. We're moving our way through, and as they collapse, when I when I speak my subjectivity, how do, how does that focus in? This is I, this. I'm having a very difficult time following a lot of your discussion. If you can't tell, it, it's it's simulating it, right? So you're simulating iliogabalus, which produces the real, right? Which allows you to construct, right? So this is part of the synthesis. Um, you begin to to consummate the kingdom, right, and to have a kingdom and have subjects. Um, that takes it's part of the subjectivity you're consummating. Right. Okay. So let's let's talk about the word simulating because. Um, yeah. Sorry. Um, the reason this is something I mentioned earlier. The reason to go. Reason why I, I'm I try to be specific with a word of use like simulacra simulation is that um, the word sim, um, simulation. Um, the implications is kind of opposition to the idea of the real, right? Um, there's the real, and then there's the simulation of the real, right? It's like a virtual or something like, you know, uh, like a video game, right? Um, that that and, and Deleuze and are really, really opposed to that, which is the whole thing that links this, links this together, right? The, the person who, who believes that. Um, uh, the king or, or the person drawing the carriage or whatever is that um, it it's it is real this experience because the name of the king or whatever doesn't designate a, a, a person per se they say it, it designates a region of intensity on the body without organs um, and it's the experience of that um, that's why I I think we need to be careful about 
I also, I also, that's why I also take Jack's warning about this. So we, we, we all need to be because um, they're really, they're trying to be really big on, uh, we, we serious about, um, you know, the actual and virtual, right? Like both are real, both the actual and virtual are real. Um, one isn't sort of imaginary or, or like potential or something like that. Um, and so I, that's why I think we're probably get, sort of confused, confusing each other. <laughs> So I'd like to talk about a different point, which is this whole idea of the adequate idea. <clears throat> you know, I've been wondering where uh, Deleuze and Guattari got these three syntheses from. And, um, and so I'm starting to think that they got them from this uh, concept of the adequate idea and the circle, because the circle is the, the example that Spinoza uses. And uh, so if you look at the circle, right, there's there's actually three things. There's the there's the, the points on the circle which are connected to each other. And then there's the middle point. And there's a disjunction between the middle point and the and the con, uh, the continuum on the circle. So the, the continuum on the circle is the continuity uh, and the uh, and the co the connective synthesis, and then the the difference between the point in the middle of the circle and the the uh, periphery that's like the disjunctive synthesis, and then you have the sweeping of the radius around the pivot of the uh, the point in the middle of the circle to actually give you a circle. A circle that is real, not just some idea that you have that's not grounded in reality. And um, and so I think that might be the the uh, the conjunctive synthesis is that sweeping arm of the radius. So if yeah. that's true, it makes it, it kind of puts this whole thing back into what he says in the Spinoza Expressionism book. Um, I think I where think he talks about right. adequate ideas. So like I like that yeah that idea of the sweeping around it's like you've got the model of the ruler demonstrating the equidistance from the center to all the points on the periphery uh, and so you actually have to perform that action you have to really produce something uh, you know to witness that and and to make it real or to actualize and, it and and this this connects with Simondon's idea that that what we have to talk about is operations it's operations that are real not just concepts by themselves yeah, and also like any uh, you know periodic uh, trajectory, a circle. Uh, there's going to be two ways you can go around that, right? You can go either clockwise or counterclockwise. Um, oh, but I also want to say I think you have right to like point to Spinoza as part of the origin of uh, the three syntheses because I recall that he had three uh, different. I forget what word he used. Kinds of knowledge or types of knowledge. Oh, okay. I mean. Sorry, I'm just jumping in. I had to step away for a bit. But uh, you can go back to Kant, right? I mean, the word disjunctive syllogism comes directly from Kant. And I think there's a book by Stephen Shaviro called, uh, I forgot what it's called, it was, I think it was called uh, Without Criteria or something. But he compares the, 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 the synthesis of production to Kant's proof of the world and uh, disjunctive synthesis to Kant's proof of, uh, proof of God and... Uh, Conjunctive uh, synthesis to Kant's proof of uh, transcendental unity of our perception. Can I ask yeah, a I'd question love, about love Jack? Oh, sorry, no, you go ahead. Um, but at some point, I'd love Jack just to make the point that he made to me in the chat just there because um, he's absolutely right. Um, 
there's there, there is an error in terms of thinking about simulating, but Alyosha, please go ahead first. Oops, sorry. I just wanted to ask, and I apologize because I know I, I since I was in between uh, leaving work and stuff, I wasn't able to fully hear the whole discussion. But one thing that I had a question about was in this debate about the chronological sort of language. I don't know if I'm I'm going off base here, but I think one of the things, the reasons why at least sort of like a, you know, invoking that idea I found helpful was even in the Simondon reading that we did, when he talks about the, the necessity in order for there to be becoming, there's a way in which being has to fall out of step with itself. And this is sort of like the beginning of all processes of becoming or of existing, basically. And I wonder if if we don't have any chronological language at all, do we kind of miss not just the sort of poetic flair, but like, isn't there a procedural point to be made there in that? Uh, not, not that these things actually, because yeah, I suppose if you like looked at things on a quantum level, if you want to use a scientific metaphor, you know, the, it's impossible to kind of determine where and things begin and stop and all these things, but like, but that there is a benefit to, because if there isn't a moment of that tripping of that slippage, you know, the, the slippage has to happen sort of like one half a second, millisecond after the, the first thing, right? So there is, I, I know I missed a lot of the in-between, so I apologize, but there's a productive, at least like, I guess how Matt said, heuristically, like there's a way that helps me think about these things in terms of, you know, being layers upon layers on the egg, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yes, but it, the simultaneous. So when I, when I use the word simultaneous, it's not throwing chronological off the the table. It's saying it's happening at once. The problem with talking about chronologically is I don't think it's conjunctive than disjunctive, right? Because you're what you're evoking is not only just a chronological order. You're invoking you're invoking a causal logic logicality, and I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's this leads to that. I think it's these things are happening at once to produce the real. And that's that's where I think we've got to be careful is if you if you try to segregate this into a causal into a cause and effect argument, then you're going to miss the effects and effects that are simultaneously happening. I love this because I think what we're what we're all trying to do here is we're all trying to make sure that all of us understand the nuances of these really difficult concepts. Um I think I'm still trying to think through right, this idea of like um, whether, whether we should understand these syntheses in a sort of chronological way. Because one, one way of thinking about it, and this is sort of the way that Kant thinks about it in a way, is that so could you have um, uh, the, the anti-production come after the design machines? Well, you sort of, you sort of could, right? Um, and Deleuze and Guattari call that the full body. It's known as catatonia. Right, um, the 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 body that organs needs designing machines to break in order to break the connections between them, and if it doesn't have those, it's called catatonia. And so I wonder, actually, maybe if there is a chronological sense to this. I genuinely don't know. I'm just trying to think it through, um, just because you know, if it wasn't, if there was no sense of chrono chronology to it or like process, then it would be very hard to um, to understand how there would be a difference in those uh, stages because they're both. They do say, I think, that um, if no if no new connections are being made, that's that's the full body. That's that is catatonia, right? Well, so for, for me, the, the the paragraph, the previous one about Louis the Seventeenth, the story of the child king to be who died and had people come back and say, "Oh, I w I'm him." It was a giant escape, and there were all these guards and all these uh, 
to me, that implies heavily that, that it's it's not about actually the chronological or series of events to lead up to, but instead almost a more reactive uh, version of taking on the things that had come before. When he talks about Richemont uh, taking on the account of the other pretenders, where he, he even went so far as to say, no, I sent that man ahead in order to, uh, like, he's again, he's being reactive. Oh, no, no, I sent the that imposter ahead in order to see if anyone was going to kill me, because then if they would have killed the imposter and not me because I am a smart king. That's what a king would do because he's taking unto himself the due that is due the king that to me that the, the entire story implies almost that he was falling back on these things. He was taking all these things almost as a simultaneous uh, serendipitous experience rather than worrying about them chronologically. Can, can I just mention that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the way that difference and repetition comes in here is that uh, uh, Deleuze in that book distinguishes between external difference and internal difference. And uh, and so the external differences are kind of like an extension and they're like horizontal, whereas the internal difference are, are, are some kind of hierarchy of intensities with critical points where things change. And and so when you look at these three syntheses together, I think it's clear that they are internal differences, not external differences. So so the, the thing is, thinking about them in time is to kind of like create a projection where where we're looking at those those internal differences in extension, uh, whereas, you know, the, the as they as they appear within the circle as the inscription of the radius as it goes around the circle, all of those things are together. The, the point in relationship to the, the, the circle itself and the, and the radius sweeping around, all of those things form one, uh, you know, kind of synthetic unity uh, wh- where all of the pieces are different from each other and have to be there for the thing to happen. When there's a simultaneous there's a simultaneous nature to the imminence of it is I think the implication when he says things like um, nothing but a series of singularities in the disjunctive network or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue. There's no ego at the center any more than there are persons distributed on the periphery. It's it's about the location of all of these things and intensities in relation to each other at any given moment. That that imminence is how I'm reading this. Matt, where where am I seeing this wrong? I don't think you are. So basically, the thing me and me and Jack are trying to think about is this idea of chronology, right? So I'll try and rephrase this. So there's these three syntheses. That's how the unconscious works, right? Um, production through the design machines. You have the anti-production through the um, body that organs, and then this third synthesis we're talking about here today, which is basically the um, the way in which subjectivity emerges. I'll put it that way, right? The way in which subjectivity emerges as this thing which exists perhaps through the experiencing of these intensities. And I think what we're trying to think through in terms of chronology is that um, if they're sort of simultaneous or just not even subject to this this sense of chronology, um, that would make sense, right, um, in a level, because... Um, it would sort of point towards the way in which they sort of synchronize and um, produce in a coherent and imminent way. The, the, the thing that's sort of stuck in my head, and I, I'd love to talk about this if Jack wants to sort of jump back in, is that um, 
Deleuze and Qatari specifically talk about a situation where um, desiring machines are being repelled from this, um, from the body about organs, right? And um, that's catatonia. Um, no new connections are being made. It's total sort of dead body, right, basically. Um, but you would, you, but that presumably, only, the only way of thinking about that is just having design machines to, to be repelled. I, I really don't know. I think it's, but I'm, I'm glad we're having the argument here because that for me is like the center of um, what Deleuze and Guattari are talking about in terms of subjectivity. Um, if anyone wants to jump in there, please feel free. It's just, you know, um, could you, can we think about these syntheses in a, like, a, a, a chronological, I don't know the word to be, a chronological um, way, or does there have to be some kind of um, process of design production, then anti-production, then the result, which is subjectivity? I don't know. So, but don't you think me, that this is partially... Oh, sorry. Let me try this right quick before um, Alyosha uh, responds. So, in the discussion with Deleuze and Foucault, uh, maybe you guys know the one I'm talking about. Deleuze um, remarks to Foucault that one of the, the new um, aspects of post-structuralism, or at least thought as they're doing it, is that they're no longer looking at theory as producing praxis or praxis as it's producing theory. Deleuze instead says what we're doing um, in reference to post-structuralism is thinking about this as this larger relay and network, whereby practice and theory are all these different switches that are interacting with each other simultaneously, not interacting with each other, right? This is very much what I think he's talking about when he talks about flows, interruptions, and syntheses. And so the chronology uh, makes my hair stand up because um, on the back yeah. of my neck, because yeah, it's happening in time, but I think you've got to understand that it, it's not that there's a level of simultaneity to it. That it's not the conjunctive synthesis produces that, and that, and this synthesis, and go and so on. It's that these syntheses, right? There's an and 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 occurring at the same time as an or or or, and the consummating consumption. They're all interacting with each other at different points, interrupting each other at different points. It's it's that simultaneity that I think is important. Yes, there's a progression and a movement, which is the flow. But this the, the chronology, I think you've got to be careful because if you try to center it on a subject, then I think you've missed the point where they just said the ego is no longer at the center. That's where I'm kind of hung up. I think you're probably right. I and mean, it also links back into Kant as well, right? So I, I remember correctly from my undergrad years, um, Kant has the synthesis of um uh was it perception and the understanding right so that we um we perceive both individual um objects but at the same time there's this process in which we categorize them under you know under broader uh categories right um and i think my understanding of kant is that this is a, this is a simultaneous process we never just perceive this object in front of me we always relate it at the same time to chair or table or whatever um and if someone understands you know remembers Kant a little better than i do that'd be great <laughs> but um if my memory does hold up there then i think you'd probably be right that um that the, the analogy would hold that it's just simultaneous process in the end it probably doesn't make a huge difference to how we think about um the unconscious and 
broadly, I think, we're all, we're all on board here. Um, but it, I'm glad we're having the argument because this is, this is the central bit, right, for understanding subjectivity in this chapter, I think. Could, could I say something? I, I just want to offer that, and I, I think I'm I'm lagging behind you guys because there's a there's a galaxy brain level this is on that I might not be able to reach. But part of me almost feels like this is a, a, an aspect of language games and the way we're discussing this, because in particular that last thing you said, Jack, where you said, you know, we have to be careful about chronology because if we think about flows in terms of a subject, then we're, we've already lost. But I think that is actually the crux of everything they're trying to do, because. The challenge is how could you talk about flows in a way that does not that it does not reduce them down into some kind of reified subject, which then begs the question and brings into all of this stuff about becoming. Like to me, that is one of the ways that they're trying to creatively think about new ways of speaking about these things that both gesture the impossibility of these ways of discussing things as well as a, a, a kind of beyond of the current sense that allows us to think about them and and the word becoming in that sense i, I think sort of inherently in its in its uh, what it gestures at does have that sense of, of steps in it because otherwise it, it doesn't make sense even if you think of it as simultaneous and you know not necessarily uh just fi fixed but again one of the reasons i said the the language games thing is because i even thought of this quote at the very end of this section whenever we get to it in i guess in the next uh, you know our next session when they say for reading a text is never a scholarly exercise in search of what is signified still less a highly textual exercise in search of a signifier rather it is a productive use of the literary machine a montage of desiring machines a schizoid exercise that extracts from the text its revolutionary force and i think this whole discussion has been actually amazing and super helpful but i think one of the problems that we might get into isn't just misusing terms and misusing theorists and all these things, but it's also the, the counteracting desire to then systematize a systematized thought that isn't there in Deleuze and Qatari, because I think we all know and we've discussed that they, they do use these terms in contradictory ways and differently throughout the text. And in particular, I think it's really helpful. I, was, I couldn't find the quotes, but earlier in the text, they have all this language about from the perspective of the apparatus of recording, this happens. But from the perspective of the, you know, connected synthesis, this is what's happening. From the perspective of the disjunctive thing, this is happening. And I think we're almost getting into this. I mean, we're doing what Deleuze and Guattari, I think, want us to do, which is we get stuck in the contradictions of this language. And then we realize that, for me at least, that it actually completely depends on which molar molecular level, you know, you're talking about. So from different, you know, not to, not, not to be completely pedantic, but you're both right in that sense that we both can't get stuck in a chronological way of thinking about it. And also, we, I, I think we do have to acknowledge there's some, you know, maybe just uh, being, feeling faux enlightened from the Simondon discussion. I do feel that there's this thing about becoming that is really, it's seeping through the text very slowly in uh, Antiedipus, but is very present on clearly in the sources that he's drawing from, that both of them are drawing from. And there's, there's some Something about moving from being to becoming that I think is able to preserve both of these things without becoming, you know, unintelligible. I, I'm actually my... going, I'm going to completely back up park bench here. This is, I think, the close Alyosha. Sorry, um, I think that's the closest uh, my brain is at because the the thing is, leading up to this, a lot of the stuff they've talked about and we've seen in their tertiary texts is they almost want us to take these two contradictory things, and they do this all the time, and actually 
uh, not synthesize them. I'm really hesitant to bring in anything Hegel and thesis antithesis shit at all. But um, I, but honestly, the idea of holding those two contradictory points simultaneously and actually sitting with them is entirely the point of being the schizo, isn't it? Ah, I mean, this is this is where it gets a little bit difficult. I think um, I don't know if we're necessarily there yet in terms of the way in which they use the schizo, but. Um, I, I really appreciate the point. Was it Alyosha? Um, I appreciate the point yes. they made there, made there as well, um, because there's an element in where we don't want to get, you know, too too bogged down in some of the uh, the details. Um, there's a quote somewhere, I think, in this book where they talk about the use of concepts as um, like deliberately, um, like carefully defined, but uh, somewhat. Uh, unspecific. I can't remember the exact word they use, um, and it's because I think they don't want to try and lock us into too rigid a, a sense of thought um, to stick too rigidly to authorial intent per se, and these sorts of things. Um, which isn't, which is not a uh, get-out clause for you know saying that you know Deleuze is a Hegelian or something. But um, yeah, uh, I, I don't really, I don't really, I don't really know. To answer you. <laughs> So could I, could I just mention another thing <clears throat> with respect to the circle uh, of adequate ideas is that, you know, one of the ideas here is that the subject gets thrown off as an after effect at, or, is, or is seen as peripheral. And I would say that that is Derrida's idea of the supplement that I, they're using. Yeah. And uh, so when you think about it, um, you know, I mean, when... Uh, you know, Euclidean geometry reigned for a thousand years in the Western tradition. So in Euclidean geometry, you have the straight edge and the uh, compass. <clears throat> and the person is using the straight edge and the compass to draw the circle and to get the radius to be a straight line. And, uh, and, so, and so if you look at it, the circle as an example of a, of a, a perfect idea you know, what's happening is that the, the person drawing the circle is getting thrown off as a supplement to the circle itself as an idea, as a kind of fourth moment in this, uh, uh, this process of, the, uh, of the, the realization of ideas, because there's someone drawing that circle. And so that, you know, for a Kant would be the uh, transcendental apperception or whatever. And 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 so I just wanted to mention that that, you know, it comes down to very real manipulations that happened in Euclidean geometry that that we're talking about when we talk about these adequate ideas. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's Nietzsche, really. It's 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 so Nietzsche thinks of subjectivity in terms of the um, battle between these will for for supremacy within the individual, and who you are in any given moment is essentially, you know, and I used I use a phrase aspect of of this competition between the wills, um, and so what what Deleuze then does and Qatari is that they then say that this is this 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 thing which we just can't um, take hold of, right? We can't take control of this thing and you know take the intensities within our um within our within our, our power um they are the things that make us that we are we exist as a subject in the sense in which we pass through these uh intensities i suppose that's my understanding so i absolutely agree you can like there is there's definitely this weird like deridean element for me i suspect i suspect i could be wrong is that where there's a commonality with derrida 
I'm guessing it'll be because both of them are quite interested in Nietzsche. Um, but the parallel is completely valid, I think. Um, it's a very weird idea of subjectivity, I think, very interesting. I And I'm going to go ahead and uh, put a semi-stop to this so we can at least finish recording and encourage everyone, please join us on the server tomorrow. I have a feeling it's going to be a really fantastic review session because uh, we are going to get really stuck in this one single point for another four to six weeks, I think. But it's been great. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this. Um, I look forward to the next time. But don't don't hesitate to keep going. I'm going to go ahead and just kick Craig out.